you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19 this morning. We have just finished up, if you're new with us, um, a series in Nehemiah. And so this week we're in Luke chapter 19. It's Palm Sunday. Next week we get to celebrate Easter together. And so just want to remind you that we will not have small groups next week um, during that 9.30 hour. And uh, we have a sunrise service at 7 a.m. And we have our normal service here at 10.45 a.m. with the children's Easter egg hunt that follows. And so uh, if you're new with us, want to invite you to be a part of Easter with us next week and want to remind you to invite friends and family. We can always um, probably use some more uh, people to help us serve during both that 7 a.m. service and the 1045 service. So you can see me or one of our deacons after the service if you've got questions about that. But uh, 7 a.m. next week and 1045 as we are excited about the opportunity we have to uh, to share the gospel with many and to celebrate. Um, we do this every Sunday really, but Easter's is special, right? It's the day as they called it, um, where we celebrate the fact that the tomb is empty. And so this week, we are on the front end of Passion Week. And so this commemorates the day uh, where Jesus um, rode in the famous story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt, um, some 2,000 some odd years ago at the beginning of Passover week uh, that launches what we know now as Passion Week. And it would be the next day that Jesus would cleanse the temple. Uh, it would be on a Friday that Jesus would be um, crucified. And it would be on Saturday that He would lay in the tomb. And on Sunday that He would rise from the dead. And so this begins the, the commemoration, if you will, of the last week of the life of earthly life of Jesus before He's raised from the dead and exalted, uh, is, ascends to heaven, is exalted and sits at the right hand of the Father. And ever since that week, some 2,000 years ago, we have been anxiously, eagerly awaiting His return as His church. And so that's the next step, that's the next thing on God's prophetic calendar is for the King to return. But this morning, uh, we're going to look at Luke chapter 19, and I want to talk to you a little bit about this morning about the subject of Jesus, the weeping king. And so we're going to be in Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. And let me ask you this morning, we, we, you know, we're not really a... We don't do well with kings in our country. Uh, if, you're, if you're like me and you grew up in and are raised in America, when you think of king, you've almost got a negative perception of that. Because if you think about it, our nation was birthed, birthed out of rebellion against a king. Um, so we don't really do well with kings. We like to elect. We like to vote. We like democracy. Where kings are what? They, they are, they're born king or they're anointed king. And so it's, it's not about so much the voice of the people. And so we kind of have a little bit in our country, a little bit of a resistance to that idea of a king. And so, you know, one of the shows I've watched the last few years, um, I'm going to admit this publicly now, is a show called Downton Abbey. And uh, I admit that publicly because it's ladies tend to like it more than men. But me and Christy have been watching that show for a few years. And it's based back in like the 1920s. Um, and, you know, just a different time in the life of, of Britain and of England. Um, and, you know, one of the things about that show is you watch it culturally, you begin to see the respect that they had for the office of king and of queen and of royalty and the way they talk about them and, and just the whole hierarchy of the, of the way things worked in that system. Uh, totally different than the way we think about it, right? We say it negatively. He thinks he's king. Right? We say things like that. If we think a president's getting a little bit too uh, uh, strong with his power and using executive overreach, we, we're quick to voice our opinion and say, we didn't elect you king, right? And so we kind of have a pushback against that, uh, whereas they have more of an embrace against that. And it's just cultural. Well, we need to understand something. There is a king. Um, we, we are not headed for a democracy. Uh, the new heaven and new earth, you don't get to vote. I don't get to vote. 
there's going to be a king, and there's only one true king, and his name is Jesus. And there's going to come a day, and I, I tell you what, this election season, I'm very thankful for it, uh, that we're not going to vote anymore, and nobody's going to be running for office, and there's going to be no signs outside saying vote for so-and-so or vote for so-and-so, and no debates, and no talking heads, and no CNN, and no Fox News, and no, no websites to, to banter and debate about. There's going to be one king, and he's going to set in all authority, and we're all going to like it. <laughs> we're going to like it a lot. All of His people are going to like it. We're going to celebrate that King for all of eternity. That's where we're headed with the new heaven and the new earth. But until then, we know we're in a broken and fallen world. And while Jesus' kingdom has arrived on the scene as it did in the New Testament, it, the consummation of that kingdom still awaits. When we see that played out, fully in the hearts and lives of people and see Jesus rule and reign on this earth in a new heaven and a new earth. And this morning we're going to see attention. We're going to see a proper response to Jesus as King, but with a misunderstanding. There's a tension there in the misunderstanding of the people we're going to see. And we're going to see a horrid response from some people. We're going to see a picture of joy and a picture of sadness. We're going to see celebration and we're going to see weeping. And it's all going to be mingled together in a couple of scenes here on Palm Sunday some 2,000 years ago. We're going to see a king come up to a city having offered it peace and they have chosen war in a fight they cannot win. So look with me at Luke chapter 19 starting in verse 28. We're going to read down through verse 44. When he had said these th- and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. Have you ever tried that anywhere? Doesn't work in restaurants. Doesn't work at the supermarket. Doesn't work in the mall. Anyway, uh, it's going to work. Look at verse thirty-two. So those who were who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, "Why are you untying the colt?" And they said, "The Lord has need of it." And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, "Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest." And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, "Teacher, rebuke your disciples." He answered, "I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out." And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for Your Word this morning. and We're so grateful for the heart of Jesus that's on display in this text this morning. And as we open up Your Word and walk through it these next few minutes, Lord, we pray that You would open our eyes to see and behold wonderful truths from Your Word, to apply them to our life. And as we prepare our hearts as Your people for the Lord's Supper today, we pray that You would focus our minds and our hearts and our attention on Christ. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So Jesus here is going up to Jerusalem where He will ultimately be crucified and three days later rise from the dead. And He he knows exactly what is happening. He's very aware of who He is and why He has come. And He has told His disciples multiple times now that He must die and on the third day rise, but it just keeps going right over their heads. In fact, He tells them one time and Peter pulls Him aside to rebuke Him for saying such a thing. However, they're still, they're just not grasping the words. And so now they're getting ready and they're actually coming into Jerusalem. And Jesus sends two disciples into a village to get a colt, a young donkey. And they raise, it raises the question. When you see that scene of them sending two disciples in to get this colt and the whole mysterious, you know, the Lord has need of it question, and it brings two questions up. First of all, does Jesus have supernatural knowledge and just happen to know there's a colt that's going to be the Lord? Obviously, He would, he would have that, but is that what it, the text is showing us? Or did Jesus plan ahead? And have this set aside until, because obviously someone knows and is, is expecting him to make use of this donkey. And the text doesn't really show us that, but neither one makes a huge difference because at the end of the day, either you have a situation, another situation of Jesus showing his deity with supernatural knowledge, or you have a situation where Jesus is purposely showing that he is planning ahead to fulfill a messianic prophecy. Either way, you've got big bold claims from the gospel and from Jesus here. And so they get there, and sure enough, there's a cult, a donkey. And the guy lets them take the colt. And Luke and the other writers let the element of mystery kind of hang around it, right? And the real question, though, is why did Jesus want the donkey? What's the point here? And that's the first observation I want us to see this morning is this. We're going to talk about first the identity of Jesus. Then we're going to talk about the reality of rejection. And then we're going to talk about the opportunity for peace. So look at number one, the identity of Jesus. In verses 35 through, 30, through verse 40, you see this scene play out of Jesus get on this colt, on this donkey, and traveling into town and being or on his way into town and being celebrated by his disciples and by this crowd as they sing. And John tells us that they sang Hosanna, and we see what they sing here: "Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord." And and they're, and they're, we're going to see here in a moment they're quoting from a psalm. But the the whole scene, the weird thing about Jesus being on the donkey, and you're like, what's the deal with that? Why is Jesus right? on a donkey. Well, it was fulfillment of a prophecy that was given in Zechariah 9.9 hundreds and hundreds of years before this ever happened. Let me read that to you. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it was prophesied that the king, the true Messiah, would come riding into Zion, would come riding into Jerusalem on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And you expect a king to come riding in on a, a large white horse. You, you might expect if he's the king of all kings that this horse to be a unicorn or something, to have wings and a horn on its head. You, know? you expect something majestic, right? A big, white, majestic stallion, you know. And he comes riding in on it, conquering. But he comes in on a donkey. It's a, really a, a weird scene, really. And you're like, what, what's the deal with all that? Well, the donkey symbolizes, as the text in Zechariah shows us, humility. He'll come to you humble and mounted on a donkey. And so it shows His humility. Humble a man on at a donkey. And Jesus is not just any king. The Messiah would not just be any king we're seeing here. He's the king who came in humility. He came to serve. Jesus said it this way, I did not come to serve, but to be served. And to give my life a ransom for many. And so in verse 36, they spread their cloaks on the road. 2 Kings 9, 12-13 uh, shows an example of how for King Jehu, they, the, the people had laid their cloaks down. As a, it, was a, it was a sign of submission to him as their king as he traveled in on those cloaks. Other passages show us that they also had palm branches. As you saw the kids with this morning, the little pretend uh, paper palm branches. They had palm branches. And so you have this scene of celebration 
And it was a sign, those palm branches and the waving of those was a sign of victory and really a picture of Jewish nationalism as they, as they did this. And verse 37 says, the whole multitude of his disciples were rejoicing and praising God. So, this is a large crowd at this point that's following Jesus. He's picked up quite the crowd from the miracles. They've seen things. They've seen uh, Lazarus raised from the dead. They've seen they've seen um, um, blind people healed, lepers cured. They've seen some incredible things. And so he's got this crowd now that's with him, and many of them are his disciples. He had more than twelve disciples, right? And so he he has this crowd of disciples, and obviously mingled in with that would be some that wouldn't really be true disciples. Even in the twelve, there was one that wasn't a true disciple. There was Judas. And so obviously in a crowd this size, it's mingled with true followers and false followers. And the purpose of this, of this celebration, it says, is for all the mighty works that they had seen. And remember, this is Passover week. Thousands of people are flocking to Jerusalem. So there's tons of pilgrims coming into town for the Passover week as sacrifices are being made. This was the busiest time of year in Jerusalem as it became just a bustling place well beyond its normal capacity. And they're shouting this, it says, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that is taken from Psalm 118, verse 26. It was actually common for them to greet pilgrims that way in that day as they came into town. But we see more here than a normal greeting. The cloaks are on the ground. The palm branches are being waved. Jesus is being treated as though He is the King who is literally the King. Who Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and verse 25 of Psalm 118, other Gospels tell us they quoted that as well where it says Hosanna. It says, save us. It's a, it's a prayer. It's a cry. Hosanna. A prayer to God to save. And we have this picture here of Jesus being seen as, as a, both a humble king and a worthy king. That, uh, those, both things are going on here. And when you think about a king, you probably don't think about humility. You think about strength and majesty, exaltation, regalness. You don't necessarily think about him riding on a donkey in humility. But that's what makes Jesus revolutionary and different than every other king. He's humble. He doesn't come in throwing his weight around. We see him forcing no one to bow and kiss the ring, so to speak. He even says, I didn't come to be served. As we said earlier, I came to to serve. And he's worthy at the same time. He's obviously allowing this scene. He's had a part in setting up this scene. He's he's being praised. He doesn't stop it because he is worthy. When Hey, the Pharisees want him to stop it. He says, hey, if I stop it, the rocks will cry out. He, he came as both a servant and He came as King. He is both humble and He's worthy. He is both willing to serve and He is both willing to be, to be worshipped. See, when the Pharisees get ticked and object, Jesus tells them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. See, the Pharisees understand what's going on here. They understand they're celebrating Him as the Messiah. They don't like what they're seeing and what they're hearing, so they want Jesus to shut it down. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If I tell them to be quiet, maybe I can get them to be quiet, but the rocks around you will start crying out. You ever wonder what that means? Jesus' point is this, nothing's going to prevent, first of all, the prophecy from being fulfilled. Number two, Nothing's going to prevent the exaltation and the worship of Jesus Christ. Not the Pharisees, not the religious leaders of that day. There's nothing they can do. It's because it's innate in who He is. He, he's the Creator and He's the, the agent of creation. And he's the goal. He's the, one, he's the one that all creation is, is to worship. He is the one that's being exalted. He is the one who is the one true King. And so everything is ultimately going to bring Him glory. And He's saying, you can't stop this. There's nothing you can do. All of creation was made for me. All of creation cries out to me. Everything is going to ultimately exalt me. 
It's quite the claim. The very stones would cry out. Here's what we need to understand this morning. Understanding the identity of Jesus as the true King, the true Messiah, the King of all kings, should lead to the kind of response we see here of, of worship, lavish worship of Jesus as King. If He's King of all, what else would there be to bow and worship? If you're a believer, see this morning, if you're a Christian, we know His identity. And your eyes have been opened to know the truth about Jesus and worship and adoration and praise. That's a natural response when you understand who Jesus is. It's not a forced response. It's natural. It's unnatural if you don't understand who He is. Why would I worship this carpenter from Galilee, from Nazareth? But if you understand who He is as the Son of God and as the one true King and the one for whom you're made for and by and through, then all of a sudden He becomes the one worthy of your whole worship and life's aim. It's kind of like when you know when I would you take a when a kid's old enough to understand what a present is and you take a nicely wrapped present with their name on it and you set it in front of them. You don't have to explain to the kid what to do next. Self-explanatory. It's the natural reaction to tear into that thing. It's like if you set a nice ribeye in front of me. I don't have to pray about it. Other than thank you, Lord. I don't have to think about it. I know what to do with that ribeye. Okay? And when you understand, when your eyes have been opened to see and to understand who Jesus is, you don't have to think about what to do. You know what to do. Your heart cries out in worship. It's the natural response to who He is. Because understanding informs response. When you understand Jesus as King, worship is the only appropriate response. So that begs questions today. Like, are we living in the light of the true identity of Jesus? Do our attitudes and behaviors shout out that Jesus is our King and even King of me? Do our lives scream for worship? Are we living as if our understanding of who Jesus is has informed our response to Him in every arena of life? Are we teaching our kids the true identity of Jesus? Are we, are we, do we, are we living that out in our day-to-day life, in our families, in our workplaces? Are we simply churchgoers or are we Jesus people? So I'm saying there's a big difference. And someone who goes to church and attends church and goes through rituals and it's a part of their life. And someone who does that because their identity is in His identity. That they are children of the King. That they are sons and daughters of God. And that Jesus is their elder brother. And Jesus has adopted them in, to brought them into God's family. And that He is their King that they worship. Understanding the identity of Jesus should cause us to live in response in all of our life of worship of Jesus in every arena and every way. Worship's not just singing on Sunday mornings or going through motions. It's living all your life in obedience and response like Jesus is King. Right? If, if you have a King that demands obedience, uh, honoring that King doesn't just mean when you're in that King's presence on that day that you, that you bow your head or, or kiss His hand or something like that. It means that whatever His decree is that has went out through all the land, you follow the decree. Or else you're just a hypocrite when you're face to face with Him. And in the same way, because Jesus is our King and He's the King in all arenas of life, that means our worship of Him and our bowing down of our hearts to Him should be expressed in all of life, in every area, not just one day out of the week. Number two, the second thing I said we were talking about was we would see the reality of rejection. See, even though His identity is that He is the one true King, we are, we are slapped in the face here with the reality that most people have rejected Him as that one true In fact, we all have. And most continue throughout their lives in that rejection of Him as the one true King. If you're familiar with the New Testament and you were just reading through a gospel 
like Luke's here, when you get to this point, you would begin to think, finally these folks get it. That's what you'd be thinking. Finally, it seems like it's been going over their head for 18 chapters and then you get to chapter 19 and you're like, finally they get it. They understand that He's the Messiah and that He's the Son of God and Jesus' identity is on full display and no one's saying, shh, don't tell anybody like you see at other places in the Gospels. But it's just being openly celebrated and you're like, finally, we're there. They get it, right? If you'd never read the Gospel before, that's what you'd be thinking and you'd see one big happy ending about to take place, right? But remember the context. The Passover week is beginning. The Passover, of course, celebrates God's delivering them out of Egypt, out of slavery. And at this time, they are being oppressed by a new foe. Not Egypt this time, but Rome. And many, if not most of these people, are looking forward to the Messiah. And they believe Him to be a conquering King. Some some see who see Jesus as the Messiah here in this passage, but even though they see Him as that, they're hoping that He's riding into Jerusalem to conquer Rome. They want an earthly kingdom now. They want to be released from the oppression of Rome. Their view of the Messiah has become a very political view. And here they are right about who Jesus is and even what He's about to do in a sense. But they have the wrong enemy and they have the wrong method. They think the enemy's wrong, but Rome, and that the method is Jesus is going to come in and He's going to conquer them and overthrow them. But Jesus isn't about to defeat Rome. He's about to defeat sin. He's about to defeat death. He's about to defeat hell. He's about to defeat Satan. He isn't about to slaughter His enemies. He's about to be slaughtered. It's totally reverse of what they're thinking. And see, the reality is is a dark cloud is hanging over this scene of rejoicing. In the midst of a celebration of His identity, it is quite obvious that there's a lot of rejection and confusion about what's going on. You have the Pharisees there the religious elite of the day, the guys who have studied the Old Testament and know it backwards and forwards, yet they are so hardened by their hypocrisy and this form of religion that they have created that is without power that they don't see the Messiah literally standing in front of them. Instead of seeing their king, they see an enemy. They see a threat to their way of religion. Then you have this crowd of people Some with true followers, some mixed in with false followers, and many in the crowd that day, like I said, were false disciples. But many looking for Jesus to defeat Rome. They're looking for a political victory and are failing to see their need for a spiritual victory. And while praising Jesus for His identity, they don't understand the ramifications of what that actually means as Him as the Messiah, what His purpose is, what His intentions are, what their needs even are. They've they've been blinded to the truth. And isn't it true that even today, many people either dismiss Jesus outright, reject Him like the Pharisees did and like we'll see Jerusalem do, or they've misunderstood Jesus to a large degree. They reject Him like the Pharisees. They they had no intention of worshiping Jesus. They only wanted to kill Jesus. And that's the effect ultimately of sin on our hearts. Apart from God's grace, we don't see Jesus for who He is. Like the Pharisees, many people, and we can see Him as a threat to our life instead of a Savior or as a King that we need in our life. We see Him as one who wants to shake up the order of things and, and to change us and maybe we don't want to be changed. And some of you may still see Jesus that way as an enemy that demands things of you. Some of you remember a time in your life when you did see Jesus that way. Some of you know people that still see Jesus that way. And then some people are just confused. They didn't really understand what Jesus being the Messiah meant. They didn't understand the ramifications. They had this false view of Jesus. And many today still have their own false view of Jesus. Some want a Savior, but not a King. Some want a Counselor, but not a King. Some want a Life Coach, but not a King. 
Some want someone to worship but not obey. Not realizing those things are linked. And they have this false view of Jesus this this not in line with who He really is. And even as believers this morning, how many times does the reality of our lives and our choices not match up as it should to the truth of Jesus' identity and us being one of His followers? Maybe today there's a tension in your own life between your identity as a Christ follower and the reality of your relationships and your attitude and bitterness that you carry or unforgiveness that you carry or a myriad of other things that are really out of sync with you saying you're a Christ follower and Jesus being the King. Jesus is always calling us to align our lives with His identity. But the reality is many times they're out of sync. There's a tension in this text between the identity of Jesus and the reality of a broken world and system. The reality is sinners reject Him. The reality is seen most clearly in Jerusalem in verses 41 and 42. When He draws near to the city, it says He wept over it. Only two times in the Bible that are recorded that Jesus weeps. One is when his one of his closest friends dies, and a man by the name of Lazarus, and when Jesus arrives on the scene and he sees the brokenheartedness of the family and the fact that his friend's dead, even though he's about to raise him from the dead, he weeps. And then here we see Jesus looking out over a rebellious Jerusalem who is rejecting him and who is going to crucify him, and he weeps. And this word for weeps is a loud cry. It's a lamentation. It's, it, it can literally mean to bawl, like bawl your eyes out. This is not Jesus with the sniffles or with the cry voice. This is Jesus lamenting. This is Jesus weeping out loud as He looked over His city as His heart's being ripped into. It's an emotional lament. He's heartbroken over this city. Why? Because of the tension of His identity as a true king and the reality that they will reject Him. This is Jerusalem. This is the city of David. This, they're about to crucify the son of David, the rightful heir of the Messiah. If anyone should see the Messiah coming and go, that's him, it's Jerusalem. It's the, it's the Pharisees. It's, it's the people who know the law. It's the priests of that day. And it's the, it's the city of Jerusalem where the temple was and where they did temple worship. And they look forward to the Messiah. If anyone should recognize Him when He walks into town or rides into town, it should be them. And they're not going to recognize Him. The vast majority of them are going to reject Him and ultimately crucify Him. And it shows to us just how sinful and broken and wicked the world is. That the people that were most consumed with the idea of a Messiah and looking to His coming are so blinded by their sin that when He shows up on the scene, they reject Him and they kill Him. And nothing demonstrates the wickedness of the world like the cross and what happened there. The very Son of God comes into the world He created and He's rejected by it, even by His own people. He's mocked and He's crucified. It's a cruel and wicked world. And at the same time, nothing demonstrates God's love for sinners like the cross. Because Jesus willingly and knowingly laid down His life, fulfilling the very plan of God. It's the very plan of God that's unfolding here before their eyes. And Jesus willingly came into this situation and willingly laid down His life. It was not taken from Him. And the reality is that while the Messiah has come, the people's eyes are hidden from the truth. It's hidden from their eyes. You see what he says there? He says, it was, it, you've not known the things that make for peace because it's been hidden from your eyes. His coming to His own people, His being rejected, His being crucified, it's all part of God's foreordained plan. Jesus came to die. He's not going to be surprised. He's going to fulfill His mission. This does not keep Jesus from weeping though. 
over the situation. Just because he knows it's God's plan, just because God is sovereign over this whole situation, doesn't mean he doesn't love and feel compassion for this people. You see here the sovereignty of God and the compassion of God. You see it all together right here in this scene. Jesus is not going, this didn't go well. <laughs> now they're going to kill. No, he knew this was the plan. It was prophesied that he would be rejected. He knew that this was God's plan. But it, he doesn't go into this stone cold and hard hearted. See, this is how sinful you people are. I've come and now you're going to kill. No, he's broken over this. And you see his mercy and you see his compassion towards the loss. And as Jesus is weeping here, he reveals the ultimate tra- tragedy is being revealed before our eyes. And that is that they have forfeited their opportunity. And that's number three, the opportunity for peace. Jesus offers peace to this city and they choose war. He draws near, He weeps over it. He says, would that even you had known this day the things that make for peace. But they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you. And He begins to tell them the horrible, to prophesy what's going to happen over this city. The reality is if the people reject Him as King, even though that's His true identity. And here we see Jesus, though as this weeping, compassionate king, and this people have forfeited their opportunity to truly receive him as king, and it's going to lead to the ultimate tragedy. See, two other scriptures help us understand the scene of Jesus looking over this city and weeping over it. One, I came across this week actually just in Bible reading, in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Let me read it to you. This is the the law, the Old Testament law for how warfare was to be conducted in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. So the law was, as they, as they, as they went into a city to conquer it, they were to stand outside that city and to give terms of peace and basically say, hey, there's a way for you to save yourselves here. There's a way for you to not be conquered and, not, and to not be taken out here and you were to give them an opportunity to surrender. And then if they didn't, they would besiege the city. So that's one thing to have in mind is that Old Testament law that Jesus would be very well aware of and that Luke would be when he records this. Another thing is to remember something Jesus said in Luke 14. In Luke 14, 31 and 32, Jesus says this, What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And you see that phrase in both Deuteronomy and in Luke 14. And Jesus is giving an illustration of counting the cost of discipleship in Luke 14 and uses the illustration of the terms of peace to prevent a war and how you should seriously consider it before you go into the war just like you should seriously consider discipleship before you just loosely say, I will follow Christ. You should know what you're getting into. And here's the picture, I believe, of Luke 19 that Luke wants us to see. Jesus has just been celebrated as the King of Israel, the Messiah. And He, like a king, is looking over a city that is rebellious and sinful. John Popper describes it this way, a king is coming to a rebellious city, a hotbed of resistance against his rightful authority, and the king is willing to make peace, but only on his terms. That's the scene. As Jesus looks over this city as their rightful king, he's willing to make peace, but only on his terms. But they have refused, and they will continue to refuse his terms for peace. The things that make for peace in this text is speaking of the things that lead to a right relationship with God. Rather than peace with God through humble repentance and trusting Jesus as Messiah, they are choosing war and missing out on God's kingdom. Say, so how, how are they choosing war? Unbelief. 
Unbelief rejects the terms of peace and instead picks up a sword and says, I'll just go to war with God. They're not consciously saying that, but that's what they're doing because they're rejecting. See, they don't get to decide the terms of peace. You don't get to decide the terms of peace. I don't get to decide the terms of peace. God decides the terms of peace. And the terms of peace have been offered and it's it's Jesus. It's His kingdom and coming into the kingdom through repentance and faith and they've rejected that. John 1.11 says, He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. That's the problem here. And the problem is that they do not know the time of their visitation. That's what Jesus says at the end after He gives the prophecy of the destruction. He says, all this is going to happen because you didn't know the time of your visitation. The Messiah had come and yet they had rejected Him. They were going to crucify Him. A visitation from God in the Bible can be either a blessing or it can be a judgment. And they had been blessed by having the very Son of God walking among them and now they're going to be judged for rejecting Him. They did not know the time of their visitation. They didn't know that God Himself was walking among them. And Jesus describes what's going to happen to them. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down to the ground. Tear you down to the ground. He's talking to Jerusalem as the city. The children within you, right? The people within you. Your children, Jerusalem. the, The people within the city. All of you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is speaking of something that happened 30 or so years later in AD 70. In AD 66, the Roman procurator over Judea sent troops into Jerusalem killing 3,600 people in Jerusalem. There was a conflict and attention that had went on. He had done some things. He had taken some, I think, some temple treasury or something like that. And so they were kind of, they were irritated at him and kind of, and then, so he just says, I'll, I'll, I'll teach you a lesson. And he sends troops in and they kill 3,600 people in Jerusalem. This leads to an intense Jewish rebellion against Rome. It would climax ultimately in the siege of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple in AD 70 in a raid led by Titus. In fact, the Jewish state did not exist again until many, many, many years later in the 1900s here in the last 100 years, the last 60 or 70 years. There was no Jewish state. That's how decimated they were after this. That's the intensity of the judgment that came upon them. So that's the first judgment that they're going to reap from this situation that Jesus is prophesying about 30-something years before it ever happened. Second, they're also forfeiting the kingdom of God. Jesus is the only way into the kingdom of God. And the only way you enter the kingdom of God is through faith in the King. You must personally repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ alone for salvation. Remaining in your sin brings much worse judgment than anything that was experienced in AD 70. It brings an eternal judgment, eternal destruction. And there's a big tension here because Jesus is weeping over all of this, yet He knew it, right? When He came into the world, He knew this was going to happen. And He weeps over their rejection, but it's real rejection. And He's he's sovereign over the situation, but that doesn't negate His compassion for the people. And this is kind of explained that this idea of their rejection and God's plan coming together is revealed in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, speaking of the Messiah. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's what happened to Jesus. Despised and rejected by men. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And you see here man's rebellion and rejection. And you see God's sovereignty and God's plan all coming together in Christ and at the cross. 
the crowd, if you'll remember, was Jesus was coming in. They, one of the things that Luke records, I don't think any of the others record this, was they were saying, peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. Kind of connects back to Jesus' birth in the beginning in Luke. Peace in, not on earth, he doesn't say. He says they were saying peace in heaven. Yet the Prince of Peace was about to be rejected. For there to be peace with the God of heaven, the Prince of Peace would have to die. And today, we're in a different situation. We wait for Jesus to return. They were looking at the first coming of the Messiah. We're looking to the second coming of the Messiah. And this time, He is coming as a conquering King who's already defeated sin, death, and hell. And He's coming to rule and to reign. And until then, the terms of peace have been extended to all. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and is awaiting the word from His Father before He returns. In the meantime, the question that remains for all of humanity is do you have peace with God? Have you accepted the terms of peace? Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What are the terms of peace? They come through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the acceptance of Him. It is repentance from sin towards God and faith in Christ and what He has done. My question for us this morning is, do we realize the age of opportunity that you and I live in? Because they did not. They did not. The Messiah was walking above them and the great majority missed it and rejected Him. And we have been given, in our day, the full revelation of God. There are many churches this morning in our own city where you can, even right here in Ballin Park, Park, there's a couple, and right around Ballin Park, where you can go and attend and hear the good news of how to have peace with God. It's an incredible privilege we have. You had a choice this morning when you woke up and got out of bed of places you could go and hear the most important news on the planet that could change your life forever. You had a choice. Now some people in some parts of the world don't even have a choice. We have been, we live in an incredible age of opportunity. You can actually pull up your iPhone or your, your Android and you can, you can push a couple of buttons and you can hear the most important news ever given to humanity. Or you can read this news. We live in an age of incredible opportunity. Do we realize the age we live in? Can you imagine this morning having an, a terribly incurable disease as far as you know? And finding out too late before the disease has taken hold and your death is certain that the entire time, your entire life, in your backyard, there was a tree that had coursing through its root system and flowing out of its leaves and foliage the one cure for that disease. And you spent your life mowing around that tree and planting flowers around that tree. You're, you pushed your kids in a swing that hung from the limb of that tree. You sat in the shade of that tree and you read your favorite novel in the springtime. And then you find out too late that the entire time that tree had the cure for your disease. You had this incredible opportunity growing in your backyard and you didn't even know it. And I'm telling you, there's a way worse tragedy. That there's a lot of people that live in the shade of the gospel and they mow their lawn all around it and they push their kids in their backyard of it and they, and they, they, they walk all around it and they never take hold of its cure. The terms of peace have been offered. And we live in an age of opportunity where it's just right here in front of it. Just, it, it if you're here this morning, you, you hear the terms of peace. and it, It's there. Today is the day of salvation. The Spirit of God is in work at work in the world today. Not just tomorrow, not just yesterday. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. 
people are coming into the kingdom of God all over the world today through faith in the one true King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And judgment day looms. People die. Jesus will return. The kingdom of God, heaven, the new heaven and new earth will happen. All this is going to happen. People are going to give an account to the Lord Jesus. But today there are terms for peace. There's a Savior that is awaiting that He's not come back yet. And there's terms of peace are offered. And the first question we have to answer this morning is, do we have peace with God through Christ? Have we accepted the terms of peace? Have we admitted our sin and turned from it and embraced the one true cure for our sin, the Lord Jesus Himself, who died in our place, bearing the wrath of God, bearing our punishment for our sin, who rose from the dead three days later in victory over sin, death, and hell? Have you been united with Christ? Is your faith in Him and Him alone? Are you trusting in your performance and are only in what Christ has done on your behalf? Do you have a radical revelation? That's revolutionary when that happens to your heart and to your life. Has that happened to you? Number one, that's the first question we have to ask. In church, the second question we have to ask is, do you know and do we understand this morning that that king is extending those terms of peace to people far from God today through you, through us? We are the bearers. There is no plan B. You say, how do people hear about these terms of peace that... Us. You say, well, you just said they can, they can get on their iPhone and they can, they can read the Bible and they can hear preaching. And they, yeah, how did that happen? People. Right? People translated those scriptures and people preach the gospel and people create those apps and people start churches and people go knock on doors and people reach out to their neighbor and people hand people a New Testament and people win people through relationships and, and win their neighbors and their co-workers and their family members. God reaches people through people. And the terms of peace are still offered today to a lost and dying world that rejects and pushes against the idea of Jesus as King and He extends the offer of peace through you and through me and through the local church. We are the ones who extend this offer. Will our lives exalt and praise Jesus as King, giving Him the worship He deserves? The Gospel is proclaimed best from the lips of a transformed life. Will we be gripped by the reality that there are many people in our circle of influence who are far from God? And will we show and share the compassion of Christ to those far from God? Jesus, the weeping King who, who, who knows and who understands that people have rejected Him and knows that they deserve the judgment who's coming against them, but nonetheless He weeps because He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Do we understand the compassion of Christ this morning? Are we connected to it? Do we share it? Are our hearts becoming like His heart? What kind of Christians will we be? That's the question for us this morning if you know Jesus. What kind of church will we be? We have a choice. An opportunity lies before us. We've been entrusted with the greatest news in the history of the world and we get to decide what to do with it. And if we will be a people as individuals and corporately who are shaped and defined by the Gospel and extending that offer to our community and to our world or if we'll miss our opportunity much like they did.